ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In this episode of Future Tense, why charities should have a limited future. Getting academics and researchers to think about the end of their research, not just the beginning, and a thoughtful take on the outsourcing of our intelligence. What do we lose when we let machines think for us? To a certain extent, humans aren't necessarily always particularly skilled in terms of their critical thinking due to the fact that, yes, we do live in a very time-poor, information-rich society. That's normal for us um, for the last couple of decades. And so having that level of criticality is something that we potentially have lost or has been a little bit eroded. So in a way, one of the upsides of this new technology may be the fact that it's raising awareness of the fact that we are somewhat potentially losing that critical edge and we mustn't do so. Research scientist Sarah Vivian Bentley. We'll chat with her a little later in the show. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. So my name is Wei Yo, and I'm the founder of OIC Cambodia and the co-founder of Umbo. And Wei is also the author of the provocatively titled book, Redundant Charities. The subtitle is Escaping the Cycle of Dependence. And let me make clear, it's not an argument for the end of development aid or the provision of emergency assistance in disaster zones. What it's about is rethinking the systems and structures we create for helping those in need. Wayo. Charities have existed for a long time, Anthony, and it was post-World War II when there were obviously many issues that globally we wanted to address. And charities initially started to obviously help with the recovery in lots of countries after war. And then soon other issues came up and the charities started to move in that direction too and think about all the ancillary issues that they could help solve. And this is really interesting, I think, when we talk about charities because there's a phenomenon called mission creep or mission drift, which is the charity starts off in one direction focused on one particular thing and then slowly starts to slide into other directions. And often that movement can come about through funding. So they might move into a new area because there's more funding available. And you talk about, don't you, the the measure of success that charities have, or many charities have, being out of whack in the modern world, that in the sense they're not looking to make themselves redundant, even though it's a common phrase in the aid community to do yourself out of a job. Yep, that's right. Charities do talk about this concept of we're working ourselves out of a job, but when you go back to a charity and ask them, okay, when is that going to happen? When will you actually finish? There's usually a awkward silence. So I think it is really incumbent on us to think about what a successful charity looks like and then, of course, how we measure that success. So a lot of charities do measure success in ways that I don't think really relate to anything beyond just boasts. They do talk about things like the amount of money that they've raised and how that's increased over time. And the analogy I like to use is that's sort of like a marathon runner boasting about how many carbs they've had before a race. It doesn't tell us about the quality of the race or the time that they got. And it's the same with charities as well. So I'd love to see charities think a bit more long-term about the success that they are able to have once they've made themselves redundant and then the impact on all of eternity afterwards. You write in Redundant Charities about an obsession with growth. Just explain that to us. There's been a lot of influence in the charity sector, I believe, from the private sector. And a lot of this bigger is better mentality comes from the private sector influence, where it absolutely 
does make sense in that setting. But bigger is not always better. The issue of scale doesn't necessarily indicate success in any way. And my argument in the book is that a successful charity is not one that grows, but one that actually shrinks to the point of oblivion. It'd be like seeing a physiotherapist, which is my background. You wouldn't want to see this therapist over and over again for years on years. If that physio is able to make themselves redundant, then they've done the job and you're able to get on with your life without them. And I think the same thinking can apply to charities. You make the argument that a lot of charities, they're not actually involved in solving the problem anymore. They're really just about addressing symptoms. It's a natural thing, isn't it, if you're working in an area and you think you're doing good, to forget about what the end goal should be. It's, it's not unusual. Not at all. And on the cover of my book is a, a hamster in a wheel. And that's deliberate because I think charities do get caught up in this cycle of dependence where they're asking for funding, they're spending the funding, and then they're justifying why they should get more. And it's not just the charities. Unfortunately, the communities get caught up in another cycle of dependence where they are relying on the charities to function. But, you know, successful charities are those who make themselves redundant and they solve the underlying problem. And the only way that we know if they're actually solving the problem, as opposed to addressing the symptom, is if they're able to exit or if they're able to shut down. And that cycle of dependence, I mean, there are some countries in the world, I'm thinking of the Pacific, where foreign aid is actually the primary national income source, isn't it? That's absolutely correct. So there are countries where aid is, you know, the main source of GDP. And the question that has to come from all of that is, well, what happens when that money gets pulled out? And this is the thing, in in countries overseas that are relying on aid, any country where charities work, there has to be an exit at some point. So there was a study done a number of years ago that looked at what are the key reasons why charities do exit countries like those in the Pacific and Cambodia and so on. And they found two key reasons. The first is that the donor government no longer gets along with the host government. So it's a political reason. And the second reason is the money runs out. So neither of these reasons are what I call intentional exits. They're just things that happened in the environment. And therefore, that leaves the community in a really poor situation once these charities leave. So it's clearly much better to be intentional about our exit and making sure we set those communities up for success. We've heard on this program in the past in looking at this issue, the idea that aid money sometimes lets governments off the hook, that they can leave others to address the needs of their own people, their own poor. Your feelings on that? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to put people in those communities at the front and centre of their own destiny. And so when we as internationals, you know, and I am a good example of this, you know, born and raised in Australia, spent a significant amount of time in Cambodia and China, it's not really incumbent on me to determine what their future should be like. So I do think in part of this answer of the charities making themselves redundant is also the foreigners making themselves redundant too. And so when I worked in Cambodia for five years, I was able to start a charity and then hand it off to local leadership for them to continue after I was gone. And this was around speech therapy? That's right, yeah. So the issue in Cambodia is that there are no speech therapists graduated from university in the whole country. And that was the issue that I faced in 2013 and was well known within the sector. And the problem is that it affects over half a million people. So it's not a small issue by any way or form. And this charity that we set up, OIC Cambodia, is there to start the profession in tandem with the government, with local actors, and then we'll exit Cambodia in 2030. 
In the example that you gave there, is there is there a sense in which expertise has been flown into the country, but there hasn't been training on the ground? In other words, locals haven't actually been given the job. Aid organisations have tended towards bringing others in. There's this mentality of, you know, give a person a fish, they'll fish for a day and teach a person to fish and they'll feed for a lifetime. Both of those things are are very true and, and definitely teaching a person to fish, I think, is better. But to be honest, that's been happening in Cambodia for a long time. And there's been a lot of training from well-meaning foreigners from countries like Australia and France and the US for decades, but still no Cambodian speech therapists. So my idea is that we need to have a fishing industry approach. We need to actually build this industry, or in this particular case, a speech therapy profession from the ground up. And that's got to be driven by Cambodian people so that we do have institutions like universities, like government policy and like professional bodies controlling it from their side. And moving forward, what are some of the key changes that you feel the industry needs to address? I think we really need to think about what the future of charities looks like. We've had this form of charity for many decades, you know, since World War II, and the structure hasn't really changed. And yet a lot of the same problems seem to be happening over and over again. So I try and make it really clear that in criticising what's happening, I'm definitely not criticising people or individuals or organisations. It's more about the structure. When the structure is the way it is and things get repeated, we have to look at that structure and try and think about how we can define things differently. So I think moving forward for the future of charities, we need to redefine what success looks like. And that's where making yourself redundant as a charity should come into place. And in terms of measuring success, how should that change? What should be seen as the measure of success? We currently talk about charities in very short-term timeframes. So this is, you know, just reflective of society as a whole. Everything's been shortened in terms of time. And we want charities to do an incredible amount of work in a very small space of time. Sometimes you have to scope out and implement and evaluate all within 12 to 24 months or 36 months. This is not long enough to create an impact. And we tend to define the success of a charity in the time that the charity is in-country or is alive and open. But that can be 10 to 15 years, which is a relatively short amount of time when we think about, you know, the whole breadth of time. So I think the key change about what success looks like is thinking about the impact that the charity has, not just in the time that it's alive or in a particular country, but in terms of what happens after it leaves and after it's shut down. Let's think about the success of the charity defined as all of eternity and not just 10 to 15 years. Well, Wei Yo, author of Redundant Charities, Escaping the Cycle of Dependence, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Thanks so much, Anthony. Staying with that idea of rethinking established practices, and our next guest is Seth Rudy, an Associate Professor of English at Rhodes College in Tennessee. He's the co-author of a new book called The Ends of Knowledge, Outcomes and Endpoints Across the Arts and Sciences. Universities, he argues, are being held back because they still largely rely on a knowledge structure that belongs in the 19th century, one that silos research into three disciplines, the social sciences, the natural sciences and the humanities. Seth Rudy. They emerged out of an older model of organizing knowledge, right? They sort of came out of the ending of the medieval system. And when knowledge advanced efficiently, they needed to be sort of protected, right? The different areas of knowledge had advanced far enough that they needed to develop independently 
of each other in order to move forward and not get so entangled with each other that they tried to do everything everywhere all at once. And that sort of emerged into the modern disciplines and the, the tripart structure of the university that we're now familiar with. And it's not that it doesn't work, right? In a lot of ways, the structure still does work. But so do, you know, my first gen iPad and the internal combustion engine, there might be better technologies out there. Clifford Siskin has a really useful model for thinking about this. Modern universities, and therefore the knowledge they produce, are all about zoning in a kind of municipal city planning sense. So divisions and departments, they created these steady, secure places for, for disciplines to develop, but times change. And as we often see, zoning laws can sometimes hinder progress and development. So this is, you know, this is a commercial district. It's not zoned for housing. So it's harder to build additional housing when more housing is what you need. This is a physics district. It's, it's not zoned for political science. You, you can't do that here. We needed the strategies and structures, knowledge production to get us this far, but they might not be the best ones for moving forward and facing the world as we now find it. Now, we have seen in recent decades an emphasis on an interdisciplinary approach to research, but you say that such efforts are frequently additive rather than interactive. Just explain what you mean by that. Interdisciplinarity is great, and I hope the emphasis on it that you're seeing is is really just the tip of the sword in terms of thinking about reimagining structure. When critics say they're additive, they're suggesting that interdisciplinarity combines established disciplinary methods rather than remaking them. I think disciplinarity is inevitable. I like disciplines. But it's not really at the the disciplinary level we're trying to intervene. It's at the divisional level. If we group the existing disciplines differently, if we kind of group the silos in clusters the way they are now, but different clusters, we change how they interact with each other. So if you put, for example, literary studies and physics in the same division or environmental science and sociology, you create the opportunity for something new to emerge from that proximity and you institutionalize the sense that it could. In a recent publication, you and your colleague Rachel Scarborough-King floated the idea of creating a new division. So we have, you know, the social sciences, we have the natural sciences, we have the humanities, and you've suggested a fourth division called unification. Just explain the thinking there. Is this about promoting or fostering the idea of greater interaction, interdisciplinary research? Yeah, but amongst those disciplines where that seems to be a logical thing to do, right? That's not universal. That doesn't have to apply overall. So the sort of division of unification is kind of only one new organizational unit, unifying knowledge across and within different fields as we understand them. Take computing, for example. We asked Jeff Bowker, who's a professor of informatics at UC Irvine, about the ends of knowledge. And he argued that because computing and computers have become so integrated into our lives and into the natural world, and it looks like the future is going to be more integration with machines rather than less, scholars in the humanities and sciences must learn from one another to understand how our computers create us as much as we create them. This vision of the ends of computing means pursuing balance and stability both in the natural world and in the relationship between people and machines. So in the end, computing becomes a humanistic issue. In fact, it already is, but we don't tend to treat it that way, at least not institutionally. So like a department or division of unification would comprehend scholars from across the arts and sciences who understand the ends of their work as tending towards convergence or consilience with other fields or people who think that has to happen before they can get where they really want to go. And that would mean, wouldn't a change to that that very common idea that there are the STEM research areas on one side, science, technology, engineering and mathematics, versus, if you like, the humanities 
Yeah, that divide is really deeply entrenched and just as deeply counterproductive. We tend to fight each other about whose subject areas are harder, more important, less important, useless. It's a huge waste of time and energy. But more than that, right, it, it keeps us from thinking about things in new ways. We can't know what knowledge we're not producing or how we might be more useful to each other, what ideas we're, we're coming up with that can make all of our knowledge more useful to the world, because the structure isn't really set up to facilitate it. What impediments are there to trying to reform the structure and the operation of the university as it exists today? Many, and they're big. Financial, managerial, architectural, and, and geographic. Universities are, are built according to the structure, with natural science and humanities buildings often being you know, on opposite sides of the campus. There's literally a lot of distance between them. And the current structure makes it easier to target specified fields for political or budgetary reasons. That is an obstacle. That easiness is an obstacle to change. So it's like they can cut philosophy or medieval history as they're they're proposing to do at ACU in Australia, or they can mothball mathematics and modern languages as at Western uh, West Virginia University in the States and pretend that the system is essentially unaffected. So they can take a chainsaw to one branch of knowledge, say the humanities, and say, well, that's okay. We still have all the stuff that matters, and they have nothing to do with each other anyway. But that presupposes that they really don't or couldn't. And that presupposition is reinforced by the way we divided knowledge in the first place. That's to say nothing of all the other organizations and businesses that operate in accordance with the structure. So academic publishing. And this is, I think, a big obstacle, for instance. Publishers need to sell books. They need to market these books. This is perfectly fair and reasonable. But when we were trying to find a home for this project, one university press said that they were very interested in the idea, but they couldn't figure out who the audience would be. Scientists, you know, humanists, sociologists, who are, who we, got. we can't figure out how to market this. We can't market to everybody. That's not how marketing works. So they passed. What else isn't getting greenlit? Like what questions aren't even being asked because everything flows from the current structure? So what's the role of divisions and disciplinarity in not advancing knowledge? but maintaining the status quo. There's there's a lot of moving parts that are downstream of this division, all of which have a, an interest in maintaining it. So the, the university itself needs to change the structure of the university, the approach that the institution takes. But those within the university also need to change, you say. You've written about the need for researchers and academics to, and this is the quote, reorient their work around the question of ends the point at which their research work might be complete. Again, what are the benefits that you see in taking that approach? It's not really a matter of every individual in every field moving the entire field towards an agreed-upon end. And I want to be clear, it's certainly not about giving more administrators and politicians opportunities to, to measure their progress. We don't want to get into a, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss scenario. For us, the, the question of ends is a means. It's a means to finding new common grounds upon which to build these structures for knowledge production. We want to see what the advancement of learning could look like if it were to be reoriented around emergent ends rather than inherited structures. And it's also a way of stopping what doesn't work or doesn't work well, but what the current system demands anyway. If researchers reorient their work, as you say, and, and, and look at this question of ends, what is the end of the knowledge that I'm pursuing? Will it help them in terms of arguing their case, in terms of demonstrating why their research is necessary, is needed within the society? That's the toughest one of the questions that I think you've asked. Is it going to help them underline the importance and value of the humanities, for example, in the real world? 
I think it can and it will, but I don't know if it's going to do so in time to save us from ourselves, right? Like people say, oh, philosophy or history are no longer needed. And, you know, okay, no longer needed. No longer needed for what, right? People who say they're no longer needed are, are usually thinking about the ends already as they see them, even if they don't realize it. And that thinking isn't really closely interrogated, even by those who, who disseminate it. You know, stories of bankrupt English majors working at Starbucks circulate around the internet like so many pictures of Bigfoot. You know, I'm sure they're out there, but the idea is achieve mythic status when the, the actual picture is more complicated than that. You know, some people make more money than others, but not everyone can or wants to be an engineer. I don't want to say it's a, a defensive posture, but part of it is with respect to avoid being mischaracterized by others, by having our ends decided for us by other people. So a few years ago, in 2015, the governor of Wisconsin at the time, Scott Walker, proposed a change to what's called the Wisconsin Idea, which is a sort of governing philosophy of higher education in the state. He proposed to remove the words from the state code commanding the university to search for truth and improve the human condition and replace them with meet the state's workforce needs. We ended up having to walk that back, but that's clearly someone with the ends of knowledge in mind that, you know, will persevere in a vacuum. And look, finally, what's the cost of not rethinking the structure of the university, of not taking a more reflective view of the way we conduct research? We can't really know, and that's why we have to. Well, Seth Rudy, Associate Professor of English Literature at Rhodes College, Tennessee, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. We use digital tools for just about everything these days. And increasingly, we rely on them to do the thinking for us, whether it's finding the best route from one destination to another, or even deciding what to eat or read. Research scientist Sarah Vivian Bentley calls it the outsourcing of information management. And she says, while it's convenient, it comes with consequences, because it can influence not only what we think, but how we think. We're still discovering how it's changed, how digital technology has changed and is changing the way we think. But one of the interesting findings, for instance, is that phenomenon known as the Google effect, whereby we're very, very skilled now, thanks to the internet, at knowing how much information is out there, a kind of meta-knowledge. So we're very good at having knowledge about knowledge, and we're very good at knowing now how to find that knowledge. But the flip side of that is studies have shown that we don't actually remember as much as we used to, because our focus is more on the sort of procedural. If I need to find this information, I know where to get it very quickly, but I don't therefore need to hold it in mind in a way that I used to when I was, you know, for instance, having to sort of search through books and visit libraries, etc., to find out the knowledge that I I was after. So that's an interesting effect. It sort of has an upside and a downside to it. And there has been research, hasn't there, that's indicated that we trust machines much more when we're we're talking about information, perhaps more so than we do other humans. Yeah, it's a very interesting phenomena. I'm a social psychologist. So I'm particularly interested in sort of human dynamics and people dynamics. And of course, when we're interacting with technology that converses with us in the way that generative AI does, we can't help, I don't think, but to anthropomorphize that technology and to converse with it, to sort of interact with it as though it's a person, even though we know full well that it's clearly not. And so because of that, we do tend to want to establish bonds of trust. That's how humans communicate. That's how they go about their lives. They want to converse, find out information. In order to do that, you have to 
theoretically have some sort of basis of understanding between the two yourself and, and the person or groups of people that you're talking to or the technology that you're interacting with. So, of course, we do have this sense of trust in the space of technology when we're interacting with technology. We're kind of slightly devoid of the social cues and research has shown that our default mechanism is to assume that it's quite objective and therefore trust it more, to assume that the information that we've been giving because it's coming from a computer, because it's a data source, therefore has to be somewhat more neutral and somewhat more objective, more factual, more correct. And which, if we look at what we've been reading about in the press recently with regard to the acceleration of generative AI into our lives, isn't always the case. And with personal AI, there's a lot more curating of information going on, isn't there? When you used a search engine in the past, it gave you a list of options for the search term that you were looking for. But with generative AI, it really goes a lot further than that, doesn't it, in terms of selecting what it wants you to see? Yeah, of course, when we Google something and we get a traditional list of responses, although as a user we are somewhat more passive, certainly more passive than someone sitting in a library going through books, but at least we have a list in front of us and we have some sort of agency in terms of which sort of result we click on and then read through. When we get a response from a generative AI, we're skipping that phase, so we're just going straight to a singular response most of the time. That can be incredibly useful. You know, we're all very time poor and we all have a huge amount of information most of the time in our daily lives, in our work lives that we're having to sift through. So that can be very useful, but of course it does mean that it makes, it renders us very um, passive and, and somewhat compliant in terms of the acceptance of that information, going back to the points we were talking about earlier, that sort of automatic sense of trust, which makes life a lot easier. If we just trust the information, we can carry on. This kind of technology is changing the knowledge that we get, how we get the knowledge, how we curate that knowledge, what we then do with that knowledge, how we disseminate it. It's changing so many different stages of the information and knowledge process. Those aren't necessarily bad changes, but it's happening very fast. Is there a sense that we will have to wait some time before we get an accurate picture of the way in which it's affecting our thinking for, for good or bad? Yeah, for sure. That is a tricky thing. In terms of questions around what the, the values that are built into these technologies and ensuring that we adhere to values of responsibility, of sort of an ethical management and deployment of this technology, that does require an element of time and patience. And when you're contending with commercial drivers behind the scenes and also obviously a profound appetite in society, in people to engage with and use this technology, and there's nothing wrong with that, but those are rather conflicting motivations. So requiring a little bit more time may be a useful thing in terms of us better understanding how we can use this technology in ways that really do improve society and don't put elements of society, groups within society at risk or sort of traditional ways of thinking that we might be losing when embracing this technology too fast. I've met numerous people over the years, very intelligent people who find it very difficult to do basic arithmetic without the use of a calculator. I guess my question around that is, with AI, is there a chance that in some way by using it on a really regular basis, we risk losing the skill of complex thinking over time? I don't think so exactly. I think it'll be a different type of complex thinking. It could be, for instance, that, and this is just a, a sort of, you know, thought bubble of my own, but it could be that the complex thinking that we deploy when working collaboratively with technology such as generative AI will be used for a very particular way of producing knowledge and managing information. And that may highlight the fact that sometimes we want to switch that tech off and then divert to or revert to more traditional, more slow, more ponderous, reflective 
and individual ways of thinking. And it might actually highlight the fact that there are different modes of dealing with information and knowledge. One is appropriate in one context and another is appropriate in a different context. So I think there's nothing exactly to be concerned in that space. It's more just a question of understanding what are the differences, what are the outcomes, what do we gain and what do we lose. And just finally, I mean, you argue, don't you, that we need to be designing AI tools that encourage human autonomy and critical thinking. So that should that should actually go in as a priority in the design. I would definitely think so. And I think that's a really interesting space because to a certain extent, humans aren't necessarily always particularly skilled in terms of their critical thinking due to the fact that, yes, we do live in a very time-poor, information-rich society. That's normal for us um, for the last couple of decades. And so having that level of criticality is something that we potentially have lost or has been a little bit eroded. So in a way, one of the upsides of this new technology may be the fact that it's raising awareness of the fact that we are somewhat potentially losing that critical edge and we mustn't do so. So in a way, using that technology to focus on things that might be sort of strengths of the tech and weaknesses of the humans, the fact that we can sometimes have our own biases and heuristics when we're interacting with information, could be a really, really exciting area for this new technology to actually use the tech to highlight areas where we as human beings need to step up and be asking more questions. Sarah Vivian Bentley from the CSIRO. We also heard today from Seth Rudy and Wei Yo. You've been listening to Future Tense. Karen Savanovitz was the producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.